This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. November 1942, 11 months after Pearl Harbor and Germany's declaration of war against the United States, the war in Europe isn't going well for the Allies. Hitler's blitzkrieg has driven Stalin's Red Army back to the gates of Leningrad in the north and Stalingrad in the south. In Western Europe, only the British Isles and neutral Switzerland and Sweden are unoccupied. Hitler and Mussolini have declared the Mediterranean Sea to be an Axis lake, and British troops in Egypt have barely stopped Erwin Rommel's German-Italian Afrika Corps from seizing the Suez Canal. I'm Oliver North, and that's the backdrop for this Gripping War Stories podcast, The Desert War. Churchill knew Stalin's Red Army was taking horrific losses in the Axis onslaught. Concerned the Soviets could collapse, he convinced FDR to open a southern front in North Africa and agreed it would be led by an American. On 25 July, the president ordered General George Marshall to commence planning Operation Torch, the first Allied offensive against Hitler's and Mussolini's fascist armies. Marshall, in turn, appointed General Dwight Eisenhower, untested in battle, as overall commander. In three months of furious planning inside the Rock, the British bastion at Gibraltar, Eisenhower assembled an armada of more than 100 troop and cargo vessels, 200 U.S. and British warships, 500 aircraft, and more than 107,000 troops. In this podcast, you'll hear from eyewitness participants, those who planned the operation, and the green-as-grass soldiers who did the fighting. Listen how spies enabled Brigadier General Mark Clark to land by submarine in a covert operation aimed at preventing Vichy French troops from opposing the Allied landings. And how, just before H-hour, FDR broadcast an appeal, the sons of those who helped liberate your fathers from the Germans in 1918 are coming to free you from Hitler. Do not fire upon them. Then learn who inflicted the first American casualties on the liberators as they came ashore on 8 November 1942. You'll also hear from those who were there how Hitler reacted to Operation Torch and the near disaster in a bloody battle against Hitler's panzers at the Kazarine Pass. This brutal test of raw American soldiers, some just weeks out of recruit training, resulted in General George Patton taking command of the Allied Armor Corps. From the crucible of Torch emerged a battle-tested American army. The leaders and skills honed on the beaches and trackless deserts of North Africa became a blueprint for the end of Hitler's Third Reich. If you're hiring, you know that quality hires keep your business moving forward. But you also know it can take a lot of time to find the right candidate for the right job. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job on over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click, so you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then, ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. 
Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash strive. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash strive. One more time. Get it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash strive. Good evening. I'm Oliver North, and welcome to War Stories. This is the National Training Center where America's military trains for desert warfare. And it was near here in the Mojave Desert during World War II that American forces trained for their first desert war in North Africa. Tonight, we're going to bring you the story of the North African campaign, the first Allied offensive against Hitler, where American troops faced a combat-hardened German army led by Erwin Rommel, the Desert Fox. These were battles fought in the barren, trackless terrain of North Africa, where inexperienced leaders and raw American soldiers, some just weeks out of recruit training, saw the horror of war for the first time. General George Patton understood how crucial this battle in the desert would be to defeating Hitler's hordes. He wrote to his troops that on their victory depended the freedom or slavery of the human race. We shall surely win. But as you'll see tonight, the decisive victory Patton sought almost eluded the Allies in Africa. This is the North African desert, a vast landscape where nothing is quite what it seems. It's an ocean without water. Its mysteries have made it a land of intrigue and espionage, and armies have fought over it almost since time began. Cairo, 1939. The exotic streets of the Egyptian capital seemed a world apart from the storm brewing a continent away in Europe. But in the teeming alleys and alongside ancient monuments, the city on the Nile was full of intrigue. When war broke out in Europe, Egypt was a colony of Great Britain. This meant it wouldn't remain outside the fray. Its capital, Cairo, was the largest, most important city in North Africa. In 1939, North Africa looked very much as it does today, to the west of Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, and Morocco, 17 million people. The combined area, almost as large as the continental United States. Its strategic value crucial to any power who claimed it. This was not lost on British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. If you control North Africa, you really control the Mediterranean. Rick Atkinson is the author of An Army at Dawn, the war in North Africa. It opened up Suez Canal. It gave access to India and the Far East. Churchill vowed to hold Egypt no matter what, but he wasn't the only European leader who understood the strategic importance of North Africa. The Italians had had great imperial ambitions under Mussolini, and uh, Mussolini had uh, made an effort to expand his African empire to gobble up some more colonies. And Mussolini even tried to dress like an emperor. For a millennium, Italy had been a great power in the Mediterranean, but Mussolini wanted more. In 1911, Italy invaded Libya, followed by Ethiopia in 1935. And when Hitler's army invaded Poland in 1939, it was only a matter of time before the fighting came again to North Africa. In September 1940, Mussolini's black shirts, the Italian version of Germany's stormtroopers, swept into Egypt and attacked the British. But Mussolini's troops were poorly trained and equipped. And the Italians were quickly repulsed by a much smaller British force. 
At that point, Hitler recognized that he could not afford to have his most important European ally, Italy, uh, defeated in North Africa. He decided that he would send a very capable officer named Erwin Rommel. Erwin Rommel was a, a legend. Lieutenant Colonel Mark Reardon is a senior military historian with the U.S. Army. He was uh, as well known to his opponents as to the German people at home and his own troops. One of the things Rommel did do was to basically pioneer the ideas of combined arms warfare. He'd done it in Europe. He tries it in, in Africa. He was a risk taker, uh, which many generals were not. The Desert Fox cut his teeth on the battlefields of World War I and became one of Hitler's most trusted warriors. But he wasn't a typical German general. He's not a member of the Nazi party per se, but he, he was loyal enough that he commanded Hitler's personal guard at the time of the invasion of Poland. As commander of the Africa Corps, Rommel led the Axis power in fierce fighting with the British. But while Hitler had one eye on the fighting with the British in Egypt, the other was on North Africa, where he quickly took control of the French colonies of Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. When Germany invaded France in the early summer of 1940 and had control of the country in short order, Hitler then offered a kind of deal with the devil to the French. He said, you can move your capital, since I own Paris now, to the spa town of Vichy. And you may also keep your three colonies in North Africa, Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. Though the Vichy government and their citizens appeared independent, in truth, they were under Hitler's direct control. So we see them having agreed that they will fight anyone who tries to come ashore in North Africa. But no one foresaw that the first opponents the French would face in North Africa would come from the American heartland over 4,000 miles away. As World War II spread from country to country around the world, back home Americans were reluctant to get involved. The country was coming out of the Great Depression, and most people were simply trying to make ends meet. There was a long, uh, proud tradition of isolationism in uh, the American Republic. The United States did not want to get involved in another European war. This national sentiment was reflected in our armed forces. Far from being a superpower, the American army at the time ranked only as the 17th largest in the world, just behind Romania. We still had the old bell helmets from World War I and wooden guns. 17-year-old Joe Boytnot joined the Iowa National Guard on December 31st, 1939. I was living with my sister in Des Moines, Iowa, and I needed to gain a little money and get a little discipline in my life, so I joined the National Guard. Joining Boytnot in the Iowa National Guard was a farm boy named Dwayne Stone. I had a good friend that was in the Guard then, and, and he said, why don't you join us? It's a dollar a drill, and we're going to go to Minnesota for 21 days. That's $21, and that looked awful big. Down south, another country boy wanted to get off the farm. His name, Jefferson White, and he hailed from Tallahassee, Florida. Farm labor only made 50 cents a day. This is the main reason I went and joined the Army. I was just getting away from farming. But despite this young and inexperienced army, all things changed when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. I remember December the 7th very vividly because this threw us into a state of alert. They re-equipped us and they started training us, you know, for war. What mission do you get at that point? 
when, now that Pearl Harbor's been bombed. We immediately got into the bayonet training, and I mean bayonet training 24 hours a day. Had any of the sergeants or any of the trainers had experience in any combat at all? The old company barber was in World War I, and one of the squad leaders was in World War I. And that was it. The rest of them were all young, young kids. We didn't know where we were going to combat, but we didn't know where. With battles being waged in the Pacific and Europe, these young green troops had no idea where they'd be heading. The last place on earth they thought they'd be fighting were the remote deserts of North Africa. America joins the war and comes up with a daring plan to take on the German army. That's next on War Stories. By 1942, the American war effort was in full swing. Our boys were ready to join the war. The only problem was getting them there. Passenger ships like the Queen Mary were painted in wartime gray and quickly converted to troop transports. These were luxury liners being refitted, and everything was done in a hurry, you know. I mean, it was done in, a, in mass production. We got on trucks and got on the Queen Mary. Robert Green had been an ROTC cadet at Penn State University. He became an officer when war broke out and joined the 1st Infantry Division, the Big Red One. We knew we were getting ready to go overseas, but we didn't know where. We were scheduled to leave on the Normandy, and it burned, and so we were delayed two or three weeks till another ship could be refitted for troops. By the spring of 42, American soldiers started pouring into England, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, training for what they thought would be a European war. The British Army, already more than two years into its war with Nazi Germany, had a lot of experience and not much confidence in its new, untested American ally. On the one hand, they needed us. They needed us desperately. On the other hand, there was a, a wariness about what we could really bring to the table in terms of our military prowess. The suspicion was mutual. You found a pretty deep-seated Anglophobia in the United States, and this extended into the higher ranks of the American Army. This clash of cultures was even felt among ordinary GIs. British rations, British cigarettes, British everything. Tea. What, what did your troops think of that? Not very good. <laughs> We're not exactly tea drinkers. The Americans and the British clashed not only over tea, but over how to defeat Hitler. There was bitter disagreement over how to proceed, who, who to fight first, where to fight them. American generals, including Army Chief of Staff George C. Marshall, wanted to immediately invade Europe and strike at the heart of Hitler's empire. The 34th Division and 1st Armored Division and 1st Infantry Division had all gone to England because the American military planners were looking at an invasion of France. Churchill argued that the Allies should attack the edges of the German Empire and invade North Africa. They'd then have Hitler's fortress Europe surrounded and could strike from the south through Italy or Greece. He persuaded the one man whose vote counted for the Americans, and that was Franklin Roosevelt. With a strategy set, President Roosevelt ordered his military commanders to start planning the invasion of North Africa, codenamed Operation Torch. 
Roosevelt also selected a young, inexperienced lieutenant general to head the operation, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Eisenhower, at this point, is a man who has never commanded a platoon in combat, and now he's going to command an army. Also involved in the planning, another little-known general, George S. Patton. The 56-year-old Patton was languishing at Fort Benning, Georgia, and watching the war in Europe. As early as six or seven years old, he announced that he was going to become not just a military man, but a great military leader. Author Robert Patton is the grandson of General George Patton. When General Patton was given command uh, in prelude to the torch invasions, he was primarily charged with getting an untried, untested, unblooded group of American soldiers ready for a war. He was completely driven. He is a man with his eyes on the prize. The American military leaders put aside their differences with their British allies, and together they mapped out the details of Operation Torch. Already in London, Captain Robert Green worked in the cabinet war rooms. Our war room was down in St. James Park, way underground. I, I was a communication officer working with the 78th Division headquarters. So I became acquainted with the, what was going on. Operation Torch uh, anticipated two large convoys landing in Africa simultaneously on November 8, 1942. One convoy was to proceed from the east coast of the United States. They were to land in Morocco. The other convoy was going from ports on the west coast of Britain. They were to land in Algeria. At that point, forces were to pivot to the east and proceed about 500 miles to Tunisia. And the belief was that if you could get to Tunisia, if you could seize Tunis, the capital, you would end up controlling all of North Africa. But the Allied leaders needed intelligence to plan Operation Torch, and they relied on a vast underground network of spies and OSS operatives already in place in North Africa. We were allowed to have uh, diplomats in North Africa. In fact, they were spies. Uh, there were a, a dozen of them in particular. They were known as the Twelve Apostles. They gathered a lot of information about ports, about rail lines, about roads, about the, the strength of Vichy forces there. The Twelve Apostles had to run a gauntlet from Cairo to Casablanca. North Africa was teeming with spies. You never knew who was sitting at a table next to you or dancing in front of you. Hekmet, the most famous belly dancer in Egypt, was accused of being a German spy. This part of the world was immortalized in the movie Casablanca. And like in Rick's American Cafe, the French Vichy forces were totally unpredictable. The decision is made to land in North Africa, and the expectation is that the French forces, ostensibly neutral, won't oppose us. Some of the higher-level planners uh, had hoped that because these were American troops in the, in the leading waves that the French would remember the fact that we'd come over to France in World War I and uh, helped defeat Imperial Germany in 1918. Many, including General Patton, didn't want to fight the French, but were prepared to do so if the French opposed the Allied invasion. They were the enemy, and Patton regarded them, therefore, as the belligerents, therefore, as the people that we're going to try to kill. In the first Allied offensive against Hitler, more than 100,000 men stormed the beaches of North Africa in Operation Torch. That's next on War Stories.
That November of 42, an armada of 500 Allied ships carrying more than 107,000 troops left from ports of the United States and Great Britain and steamed into the North Atlantic to begin the largest Allied amphibious operation to date. For most of the American troops, this would be their first time in combat. Captain Robert Green was among them. They assembled us at, uh, at uh, Glasgow in Scotland. And uh, from there, we got on the board of ships. What were your thoughts as you're getting ready for that landing in North Africa? We wrote uh, letters to our family, left them to be mailed. We got the word to load on troop ships, but we still didn't know our destination. Jeff White of the 2nd Armored Division left from Virginia in a convoy with General Patton. They loaded us up. But we were real concerned because the German submarines were real active out there in the Atlantic at that time. And it wasn't just the GIs who were fearful. You see Patton writing in his diary, wondering how he's going to perform. Eisenhower, he's a man on pins and needles. He doesn't know what the French are going to do. He doesn't know how his own troops are going to fight. So he's a man who really is kind of on the, on, on the edge uh, of destiny. The two convoys came together near Gibraltar off the coast of North Africa. There, they were finally given their landing orders. And we looked out, and we were told that that was the largest convoy that's ever been assembled. We were off the coast of Africa, and we were going to go in at 11 o'clock that night. So they gave us a little bitty booklet, how to treat the Arabs, break bread, don't cut bread, take your shoes off before you go in the house. They wanted us to be nice to the Arabs because they did not know what side they were going to take. Showed us a mock-up model of it that was made and where we were going to land. They briefed us on, on our, what our beach and our code name was. Given that the torch landings were going to take place before dawn in the dark, a kind of password was, was needed. The particular call sign that was chosen was George being what one would shout out and Patton being what one would hear next. He was very pleased. Before the landings, were, were there any broadcasts, propaganda, leaflet drops, that kind of thing, telling the French, hey, we're here to kind of liberate you? They taped an announcement by President Roosevelt that would have been broadcast to French North Africa. So they would inform the French people that they were landing. Please do not fire on the Americans. Mes amis qui jour et nuit, sous le joug accablant des Nazis, nous vous assurons. There was no certainty about what the French would do. There was an effort to make the French believe they were all American, even though about one-third of the troops were British. Even the British soldiers wore American flag armbands. This is one of the armbands worn during Operation Torch. Morning of November 8th, you're off Algiers. We knew we were going to combat then. We landed uh, in the dark. And the enemy's there to wait for you. There were a, a bunch of uh, French soldiers, and uh, they resisted. You were taking fire from... The French Navy. I came to the closest for a while of getting killed there with the machine gun. And a shell hit right side of our convoy. And General Patton came up, and that shell hit, and he said, Go get him! In 1942, American tanks were nothing like this. In fact, they were no match for Hitler's in North Africa. So, how did we win those crucial battles? That's ahead on War Stories.
Operation Torch was launched at night on November 8, 1942. For the next 24 hours, over 100,000 American and British soldiers stormed the shores of North Africa. There were two main landing areas. One was Algiers, the other was Oran. And at the same time, you had about 35,000, 34,000 soldiers in Morocco coming ashore near Casablanca. Machine gunner Joe Boitnot landed in Algiers with the 34th Infantry Division as part of the Eastern Task Force. You land on the beach on November 8th. They landed us the wrong beach, and they made us take a glass of rum. And you can imagine that, that, that landing craft going up and down like this, and you're coming down rope ladders off the troop ship, and we're not exactly happy campers. And, uh, and me, I had tears coming out of my eyes. 24-year-old Captain Robert Green went ashore in Iran. It was quite a shock we went ashore. The French fought. The French Navy fought ferociously. They had positions along the beach and near to cover the wharf and things like that. And we fought the French from the 8th to 11th of November. Uh, three days, the Americans suffered several thousand casualties, inflicted several thousand casualties on the French. We lost people there, including the uh, regimental supply officer. One of the great naval battles of the Atlantic War occurred off the coast of Casablanca between the French fleet and the American fleet. It ended badly for the French there. The French fleet was basically destroyed. They were no match for the American uh, battleships and other ships that were there. The French forces in North Africa surrendered after three days of fighting. The Allied army now controlled the French colonies of Morocco and Algeria and the Green American Army had passed its first test under fire. They found out very quickly who was a good leader, who was not. Good leadership would be essential when they met their next enemy, German General Erwin Rommel, the Desert Fox. Hitler was furious with the Vichy forces after hearing about the Allied victory. Three days after the landings, he quickly occupied the rest of France. From his headquarters in Berlin, he vowed to push the Allies out of North Africa. And the Germans send troops to Tunisia. These new troops joined the Panzer divisions already in Tunisia under the command of General Rommel. The Desert Fox lived by his own axiom. The armor is the core of the motorized army. Everything turns on it. It's very important because um, armor basically uh, sets the tempo of operations in the desert. So we, we went to war with light tanks that weren't fit to oppose the German medium tanks. So we piled on the men. 80,000 fresh troops were sent to fight the German war machine in the desert. One of these replacements was George Perrine of the 2nd Armored Division. He was a 19-year-old from Appalachia. And we landed on Christmas Eve, December 24, 1942. On this Christmas 1942, our soldiers and airmen in Tunisia and the Western Desert gathered together in little churches or under the open sky. They thought of their homes and loved ones, hundreds or thousands of miles away. Christmas night, they had a German air raid on the harbor. Hitler sent the Luftwaffe to bomb Allied targets. They strafed the Casablanca harbor mercilessly. We were sitting out there in the open, sitting there watching it. It was a, it was a unique experience, because that was our very first experience. But the Allies struck back with the Army Air Corps. One dashing figure, Colonel Phil Cochran, a confident, aggressive war pilot, led a series of daring raids on German targets. 
These raids helped keep Casablanca safe for a summit between President Roosevelt and Churchill. Headline, Roosevelt and Churchill confer at Casablanca. The history-making conference was held in surroundings of picturesque romance. President and Prime Minister laid plans for grand strategy for 1943. So the second armored was picked to be the honor guard. We were told that uh, you're going to be escorting the president. Now you better be on your best. You start shining your buttons and cleaning up your vehicles. FDR became the first president to ever fly while in office and the first to visit Africa. But now we were told that this is where they divided the world. England would take this, Russia would take this, and Americans would take this. While the soldiers from the 2nd Armor Division were guarding FDR, the 34th Infantry Division moved east to take Tunisia. There would be the first American soldiers to fight the German army. You have a, a range of hills to the west of Tunisia, a range of hills on the eastern side of Tunisia, and in the middle is that, that desert area with escarpments and a lot of sand. Walking more or less blind because there was no moon, no nothing. You're at uh, God's mercy. Do you know exactly where you were? We knew we moved quite a distance, but we, we knew we still had a lot of distance to go. Joe Boytnot also moved east with the 34th Infantry Division. He and Dwayne Stone arrived at a place called Fayad Pass. The commanding officer of the regiment or the task force ran out of ammunition, ran out of food, ran out of manpower. And a German's counterattack. That's correct. I was in a irrigation ditch and uh, with eminent remains of my squad. Could you hear armor closing around you? You could hear them. Oh, yes. There was a couple Piper Cubs, the way I remember, come over and drop messages that said every man for themselves. Uh, something to that extent. I mean, in other words, the battleground is lost. Rommel's panzers took the 34th Infantry Division completely by surprise, and a good number of them became American prisoners of war. You're staring down the barrel of a 50 caliber machine gun and a German half-track. The uh, German officer was uh, probably 24, 25 years old, and he spoke just as good English as anybody I'd heard in my life. He said, gentlemen, for you, the war's over. He said, you could go see our homeland now. Dwayne Stone was a prisoner of war till May of 45. It just didn't work out. They got there to us before we get <laughs> get to them. Fayed Pass wouldn't be the only setback for these combat-weary soldiers. The worst was still to come for 30,000 at a place called the Kazarine Pass. It's the gateway from central Tunisia into Algeria. The pass is bracketed on either side by mountains about 5,000 feet high. They're substantial hills. Uh, the pass is about a mile wide. And um, it had been the path for invasions into and out of ancient Tunisia for centuries. The Americans were dug in deep. There was still no match for the German panzers. Joe, tell me, tell me uh, what you saw during the Kasserine Pass. We weren't on one flank very long, and we were brought up, and uh, we lost uh, several people and persons in that battle. But the main thing there is we didn't have any any support from the rear like field hospitals to take care of our wounded. Basically, they just outflank the Americans. They, every time the Americans extend their defensive line, the Germans will move over. And the momentum of the German attack was such that the Germans 
under Rommel, swept into the pass and blew the Americans right out of the defensive positions. It was bad. It was real bad. In a treeless valley called Al Gatar, outgunned American tankers win their first victory against German panzers. That's next on War Stories. By February 25, 1943, the fight for Kazarine Pass was over. Some called it a massacre. The Americans spent the next month licking their wounds. They had more than 6,000 casualties. They'd had units completely destroyed. The 34th Infantry was pretty well banged up. In terms of yardage lost, it was the greatest uh, defeat for the American Army in World War II. The Americans gave up Kasserine Pass. Rommel took possession of it. It would be Rommel's last big victory in North Africa. At that point, Rommel ran out of steam. He ran out of steam mentally as much as anything else. He was exhausted. He recognized that he didn't have the strength, he didn't have the fuel, he didn't have the ammunition to proceed. After two years of fighting, the Desert Fox tried to persuade Hitler to abandon North Africa. No, said an angry Hitler, and he called Rommel home on sick leave. As Rommel was making his final exit, General George Patton arrived in Tunisia and took center stage. The commander of the American forces at the time was a major general named Lloyd Friedendahl. He was clearly over his head. He was relieved of command and sent home. George Patton, who was still in Morocco, was summoned by Eisenhower to take over the American Second Corps. But his first order of business was personal. My grandfather's son-in-law, John Waters, was very severely wounded uh, during the period of Kasserine Pass and was missing in action. He had been positioned ill-advisedly by his superiors on uh, a hill with German forces screaming around the hill. Eventually, the Germans began to infiltrate up the hill, working their way up the, up the ravine. The Germans whirled around and fired. From hearing the news early on, my grandfather feared the worst, um, thought he was dead. After hearing about John Waters's disappearance in battle was to go to the site and he tried to use his intuitive powers to sort of imagine what might have happened. About two weeks after the battle in which John Waters went missing, they did receive word that he was alive, although very seriously wounded, and he would remain in German captivity until 1945. General Patton had an early adage about leadership in which he said leadership should depend on visible personality, and this was really kind of his uh, motto in putting himself together visually to, uh, to face his men. He was impeccable in his dress. He did not believe that um, uh, an army that looked uh, uh, sort of, you know, uh, down at the heels could fight well. He had about 70,000 American soldiers at that point under his command. Um, it was a corps that was dispirited. They had just uh, had their butts kicked. And uh, Patton's first job was to try to inspirit the troops again. He tried to put some discipline back into the court. Brees were wearing shorts and knee socks and hobnail shoes. We had to wear ODs, helmets, and neckties. Neckties? Yeah. With General Patton's 2nd Corps, you had to wear a necktie. In combat? In combat. 
He wanted his soldiers to be look like soldiers, dress like soldiers, and act like soldiers. He was very, very strict. This necktie and this, uh, let's have this helmet on. I got a $15 fine for not having my helmet on, uh, and you had to keep them oiled where they're slick and shiny. And uh, he came by and said, "Soldier, get your helmet on," and uh, naturally I did. Patton's methods of leadership did inspire his troops. On March 23, 1943, in a treeless rocky valley called El Guitar, he told his commanders, Gentlemen, tomorrow we attack. If we're not victorious, let no man come back alive. He commands uh, two corps during the fight at El Guitar, which is where the Americans first defeated a uh, panzer division in, in a flat-out battle um, that we really weren't set up for properly. The first infantry division was going to attack again, and the Germans attacked us first. It was a surprise attack. The Americans were ready for it this time, unlike Kasserine Pass. The battle lasted for several days. Fifty German panzers ambushed the Allies. That was quite a frightening scene to see all these tanks coming. And uh, this big mass of tanks uh, came down and was headed for our division command post. How'd the attack go? The Italian troops gave up very quickly, and uh, the Germans retreated, and uh, so we seized El Guitar. It ended in the 10th Panzer Division being uh, severely repulsed and uh, retreating back across the desert um, with about half their tanks lost. As the soldiers said, after they left the battlefield in victory, they had taken on, finally, Germany's best and defeated them. Despite the hard-fought American victory at all guitar, General George Patton finds himself embroiled in controversy. That's next on War Stories. German panzers repulsed at the Battle of Al Guitar, two corps under General Patton celebrated their hard-fought victory. Many said it was Patton's finest hour. Others say it wasn't. The plan that he executed, that unfolded at El Guitar, was devised by General Lloyd Friedendahl, the guy who just got relieved. He basically inherited the plan, which resulted in the first clear-cut American victory in Tunisia. Uh, with an American infantry division fighting a German panzer division. But Friedendahl wasn't the leader that old blood and guts had been, and no one questioned Patton's ability to inspire soldiers to victory. He's very, very competent general. Yeah, he was a good commander. In a final push, the Allies launched Operation Strike, a massive attack on the remaining German forces in Tunisia. One uh, spearhead went toward Tunis, one spearhead went to, toward Bizzardi, and we all met in about the first week in May. In Tunisia, f fights his corps in some of the toughest battles outside of Bizzardi, where the Germans have uh, commanding terrains. In Tunisia, it was more barren than it was in Algeria. We'd call them desert. In North Africa, the German war machine was grinding to a halt. So everything was cut off. 
They were running out of manpower and they were running out of supplies. It took a bunch of prisoners too. Yes, we did. Around 200 and some thousand. What'd you do with them? We put them in uh, barbed wire enclaves and had them rounded up and took their weapons. Africa is free and Europe that much nearer freedom. May 13th, 1943, six months after the landings in Operation Torch, the streets of Tunis were filled with jubilant soldiers and liberated civilians. But the victory in North Africa came with a cost, 70,000 Allied casualties from the war in the desert. But the American army was forever transformed. We progressed, that's all you can say. Everyone took it more serious. You got in shape. We thought we was in shape when we wasn't in uh, Morocco. We wasn't. The American army was blooded, had proven itself in battle, and was ready for the next campaign, wherever it might come. General George Patton would lead American forces in the invasion of Sicily and during the liberation of Europe. But his legacy was cut short when he died in a car crash, December 21st, 1945, just seven months after the end of the war in Europe. His nemesis, Erwin Rommel, fell further out of favor with Hitler. And in the fall of 44, the Desert Fox committed suicide with cyanide. General Eisenhower became the Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces in Europe and later the 34th President of the United States. These are some of the finest people that's ever been assembled together. These were farmers, coal miners, factory workers. I'll tell you one thing, the American soldier, whether he's an infantryman or, or, uh, or an artilleryman or an anti-tank man or anti-aircraft man, I'll tell you, you put him out without supervision, without a commanding officer, and I'd take him against five Germans any day. The Germans were, they were good soldiers, but they needed somebody to tell them what to do and when. Whereas American, these old farm boys, if they couldn't whip you one way, they'd whip you another. How do you as a soldier who fought in North Africa want to be remembered? Being part in the overall largest and most violent conflict known to mankind. And we were part of it. And you won it. We won it. I'm Oliver North and you're watching War Stories on the Fox News Channel. Stay with us. The African campaign was a crucible into which green and inexperienced American soldiers were thrown against some of the toughest troops the Axis powers had. When the U.S. and British navies put our boys ashore, an Allied victory was by no means a sure thing. Yet from this bloody first offensive against Hitler emerged a battle-tested American army. The skills they honed in 1942 and 43 in the North African desert are still used today. For those who fought these desert battles, soldiers, small unit leaders, even our generals like Eisenhower and Patton, the lessons learned were essential to liberating Europe and winning the war. For those who fought in this first desert war, theirs is a war story that deserves to be told. For War Stories, I'm Oliver North. Good night.
pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.